Welcome to Team Rabbit Hole Edition 143 with Rupert Sheldrake, a morphic mind. Whether pontificating on the magic of reality with McKenna and Abraham, confronting the dogma of institutionalized scientism in banned TED Talks, or experiencing the wonder of it all in liturgy, prayer and meditation, this Cancerian is truly a great mind and inquiring spirit. Author, Christian researcher, psychonaut, Former, join the team as we plunge down the rabbit hole with Rupert Sheldrake. Welcome. Hello, good to be with you. Aloha, sir. Thank you uh, up front for coming on here. I know that you don't do a whole lot of interviews, but um, basically I turned on to you through listening to the trilogues that you did with uh, Ralph and Terrence. Uh, so part of me wants to call you Rup, but I won't do that. Um, but that was some of the most fascinating stuff that actually probably helped spawn this entire team rabbit hole situation and that it was a very loose podcast before podcasts were a thing. So, um, uh, that's just kind of how I became aware of you is essentially the trilogues, then a band Ted talk. And then I started turning on to your work as an author and stuff, but really quickly, this episode 143 is going to resonate with the eighth major mark, um, eight major arcana card the strength card and it's ironic because the sun moon and mercury right now are in leo and the strength card is the lion card leo card i face my fears with the strength of love and patience the strength card is about trusting yourself which i want to get into in terms of epistemological uh democratized reality with you and stuff uh let your inner endurance shine using your power to embrace the amazing person within and you have everything within you you need to succeed Raphael, what would the galactic heritage card be for Lister Royals Galactic Heritage cards for this episode, we have number 35. This is Orion, Depolarity Past Timeline. In ancient times, the Orion civilization played out the deepest of polarity during a very dark time in their history. Many souls from Orion eventually came to Earth to heal this polarity through incarnations as humans. If you have pulled this card, then an Orion lifetime of yours still has some influence in your life today. These karmic patterns are ready to be released. Examine your natural human tendency to polarize in thought and belief and ask the universe to help you heal this. Also, know that this is a major issue for the entire planet at this time and your healing affects the whole as well. And maybe just to briefly mention about the Orion story within this galactic framework of Lister Royal, Bashar, Daryl Anka and others, in a very simply, uh, simply put is uh, the Star Wars story. I'm sure many are familiar with. So out of curiosity, Rupert, did any of that resonate? <laughs> well, there's an awful lot, isn't it? It's like a sort of scatter, I mean, a blunderbuss approach. It covers so many things. Yes, some of it resonated, but it went a bit too fast for me to be able to comment on the details. All good. Uh, yeah. Right. And it's not uh, it's striking. Like I said, the strength card is about trusting yourself. I think you're one of the fundamental things I learned from you and Terrence McKenna are to trust your experiences and not necessarily the hearsay of authorities, whatever that might be, which I find interesting and paradoxical as I'm a believer. You're a believer um, that has to do with authority and trust and, you know, hearsay, essentially, and experience, which we can get into. But um, I'm kind of curious and you can tell as little or as much as you want, because I know we're on a limited time schedule. Um kind of who you were in your formative years uh, as a kid all the way through Cambridge and stuff like what were some of your interests um I, I believe that our inner child 
which is the strength card, the Leo card, is always kind of there and present. And we kind of build edifices around that. But kind of um, and as brief or as long as a way you want to put it, how did you get to where you are now? Well, it has to be brief. Um, I was uh, my father was a great influence on me. He was a biologist, a pharmacist, and herbalist. Um, taught me about plants. Um, I was very interested in animals. I kept a lot of lot of pets, including homing pigeons, um, and got fascinated with how they find their way home. Um, so I had many animals. I had a pressed plant collection. I knew I wanted to be a biologist. My father had a microscope laboratory at home, and so you know I saw things, living things through the microscope, small organisms, and um, that was the, my big passion. Um, my mother, were, both of them were Methodists, and um, my mother was a very devout woman, and so the spiritual life was very important for her. So I had a kind of spiritual uh, component all along. Um, my family are musicians as well. My grandfather and my uncle were church organists, and I learned the organ, and I play the piano. Um, so music, biology, uh, kind of spirituality, nature were the things that were that influenced me a lot. Um, I did biology at school and science at school. I was at a boys' boarding school, old-type English boarding school. Um, I had good teachers, and um, biology became uh, the thing I really most wanted to do. But my biology teachers and other science teachers persuaded me that science was uh, about progress and the way forward and reason, and religion was about uh, really just looking back and superstition and irrational uh, beliefs. And I was sort of converted to atheism by about the age of 15. Um, um, but I was never completely convinced of the materialist worldview. Um, and when I was at Cambridge, um, I was an atheist as an undergraduate and as of a don, actually, um, where I taught later uh, and did my PhD. Uh, but I was very dissatisfied with the official mechanistic materialist view of life. It just felt to me that we left out everything that was interesting about living things. The first thing you did to study any of these plants or animals was to kill them and then cut them up and grind them up and look at enzymes and DNA and stuff inside the, uh, the cells. But um, everything like how do pigeons find their way home? I mean, you don't find that out by studying pigeon enzymes in a test tube. Um, so I found it very unsatisfying and looked for a broader picture, which I found through a friend who was studying German um, who introduced me to the writings of Goethe. And at the beginning of the 19th century, Goethe was trying to find a more holistic approach to science. And that had a big influence on me. It showed me something like that was possible and far away from anything that I was studying at Cambridge. Um, when I, I did very well at Cambridge, I got what we call in England a double first, and you know, the, the highest degree you can get. And Everyone wanted me to do research, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a scientist. Um, and I got a scholarship to Harvard, where I was a Frank Knox fellow, um, where I studied philosophy of science and history of science to get a bigger picture. And indeed, I did get a bigger picture, and I saw that mechanistic materialism 
is just a paradigm, a model of reality is not the truth, and that science changes and can expand. So um, I got more and more interested in a holistic approach to biology. Um, when I was still doing research at Cambridge in developmental biology, I came up with the idea of morphic resonance, a kind of memory in nature. Um, and felt that this holistic approach was the way forward, but I wasn't going to be able to do that within the framework of the biochemistry department in Cambridge where I was working. So I left, went to India, got a job in an agricultural institute, an international institute. Oh, keep talking, sorry. I live in Colorado and that's a fighter jet apparently. Um, I went, I went, I, so I got a job in an agricultural institute um, uh, because I wanted to be in India. I was interested by that stage in yoga, meditation. At Cambridge, I had encountered psychedelics, uh, LSD particularly, uh, which had opened my mind up in an extraordinarily new way for me. It was a transformative experience, a kind of rite of passage. Um, and so I took up meditation and yoga. And when I was in India, those were things that I started off with. I visited ashrams, gurus, temples, and so on. Um, but curiously, and to my surprise, found myself being drawn back to a Christian path. Uh, I was confirmed in the Church of South India, which is an Anglican Methodist um, church. And I then discovered a wonderful teacher, Father Bede Griffiths, who was an English Benedictine monk living in a small ashram in South India. Um, and I spent a couple of years living in his ashram where I wrote my first book, A New Science of Life, about morphic resonance. Um, and he had a wonderful way of combining insights from Hindu and Buddhist philosophy and, and Sufi philosophy with um, Christian philosophy and theology. Um, so he had a very integrative uh, approach, which I found suited me really well. So he was my main teacher. Um, after my book, A New Science of Life, was published in 1981, I lived mainly in England after that. Um, I got married in 85 um, to Joel Peirce, who um, teaches chanting and meditation, does family constellation work. Um, we have two sons, Merlin, who's uh, written a book on fungi called Entangled Life, um, and Cosmo, who's a musician. Um, so since I came back to England, I've really been working independently as a scientist. I was fortunate to have had private sponsorship. Um, and I've been doing research on morphic resonance, telepathy, psychic phenomena, um, the extended mind, um, the mind beyond the brain. And in, as I show in my two most recent books, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, um, I'm looking at the relations between spiritual practices um, and which have scientifically measurable effects and um, spiritual experience. So um, there, this is something about the rather wide range of areas I've been involved in over the years. And I'm still very much engaged in scientific research. I'm using this enforced sabbatical uh, as a way of doing a int much intensified research phase where I'm writing a whole series of papers for peer-reviewed journals. Um, so this, uh, anyway, that's 
covers well what, said what i've yeah. done the beat goes on i don't uh you're you strike me with a capricorn moon i did have a chance to look at your chart uh, you're an eighth house, which is Scorpio-flavored Cancer, with your Sun conjunct Jupiter. It doesn't surprise me you're into um, intuitive kind of magic, for lack of better word uh, terms. But you're also North Node is in Virgo, so it's like getting it, you know, communicating it effectively. Uh, actually, your North Node is where Terence McKenna's Moon it was, so it's like he had a Virgo Moon. He was a Scorpio. So you guys had a lot of the. It's that's a karmic thing, like straight up, like right. I mean, I could tell you that just from looking at the chart. And if you're if your wife's into this stuff, you get an earful, I'm sure, all the time. But um, so just kind of going back and chopping through, and then we can get to some kind of new turf. Uh, you, I, I'm sure, as a uh, Englishman, you might have heard of, um, and as a Christian, mere Christianity. Uh, C.S. Lewis's conversion story seemed to be something from atheism to belief, and then kind of just a matter of fact transition on a motorcycle ride or whatever. Um, was it specifically LSD and what maybe was the experience you were having that triggered your mind to go from uh, an absorption of the culture around you and kind of that model to being willing to challenge and explore new dimensionality? Well, the LSD experience in Cambridge around 1970 um, showed me that minds are vastly greater than brains and that there's far more to consciousness than just nerve impulses inside the head. Um, but it didn't show me a specific uh, theory or philosophy. I then had to explore that, and I explored it practically through meditation. I took up transcendental meditation as a way of trying to explore consciousness directly from, from within. Which uh, I know about through David Lynch. He's a big proponent of TM. Yes. Um, so I, I, I took up transcendental meditation, and I got interested in mainly Hindu philosophy. Um, and this gave a much broader view of consciousness. Consciousness is fundamental to nature and the universe. Um, so that took me beyond a kind of narrow materialist atheist worldview. Um, but not, I couldn't really become a Hindu. I mean, I was living in India and to be a Hindu, you've got to be a part of the caste system. And there's all these things that go along with being a Hindu that didn't suit me. I had a Sufi teacher for a while as well. I did a Sufi form of meditation. But again, I couldn't see myself becoming a Muslim, um, you know, fasting in Ramadan and, and not eating pork. I, mean, I was a vegetarian, so the pork wasn't a problem. But I didn't see myself taking on the whole of the Muslim thing. And I realized that actually, given my background and also my theories about the importance of habit and memory and ancestral influence, that it would be better to re-examine, revisit my Christian roots, which I did, and I found a lot made sense to me, and I, it was much more comfortable for me to fit into a kind of traditional, well, not necessarily a very traditional form of Christianity, but at least connecting with this tradition, um, particularly the Anglican tradition, which I was brought up in at school. Um, and then when I met Father Bede, um, this gave me a framework where he'd already integrated Christian mystical philosophy, mostly from the early church and the Middle Ages, uh, with Hindu thought in a way that made complete sense to me. Um, and his ashram was uh, involved yoga, meditation. Um, he wore orange robes and uh, we were vegetarian. I mean, it was very it was an Indian ashram. Um, so for me, that was a, a, a way that 
actually brought all these things together. So I didn't have... A it wasn't like a phenomenological, like, I saw God kind of thing. It was more of a leaning into the mystical. Well, yes. I mean, the psychedelics helped open the way to the mystical experience. I mean, my LSD experiences were definitely of a kind of mystical kind that showed me realms of consciousness far beyond the human level. Then through meditation and through experiences I had in India, visiting temples, um, meditating in Father Bede's ashram, I had um, a much greater sense of connection with the divine and uh, the presence of God in my life, which is very much part of my life now. I pray every day, I meditate every day. Um, and so these are um, regular practices for me, uh, but it wasn't like a sudden moment of revelation like St. Paul on the road to Damascus. I mean, the, 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 I would say the closest to that was when I first went to India, which was not when I went to work there in 1974, but when I first traveled through India in 1968, I was visiting a friend in a remote part of the Himalayas. Um, we went for a walk. The local holy man sitting in a cave by a waterfall in his orange robes invited us over and offered me his chillum. I'd never heard of chillums or indeed nor had cannabis before. And he, he said, would you like to smoke some of Shiva's holy plant? So I thought, well, you know, why not? When in India, do as Indians do. And you are a botanist. Yeah, yes, and I'm a botanist. I thought, and it was my first experience. And I suddenly felt, I went out of his cave, stood in the sunlight, looking at the snow-capped Himalayas and this beautiful green scene, the river running swiftly past. And... I felt this incredible sense of connection with the cosmos, with God, with the whole of everything that is. And that for me was an enormous revelation that preceded the LSD experience. I would say that was the first epiphany of, of the presence of God in nature, in the universe, and of my being part of it. Um, it wasn't a specific religious revelation, um, but it was a revelation of the ultimate presence of divine consciousness. Right on. So, if I may, assuming that the quote is correct by Werner Heisenberg, uh, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will turn you into an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. So what I'd be interested, especially also as you are also in a sense famous for being one of the few individuals that in a sense managed to get banned from a TED talk, which of course in my book is great acclaim and praise actually, and you kind of explained your own uh, explorations in terms of spirituality also that you kind of said maybe that you were never really satisfied with only an atheist materialist reductionist viewpoint i would be interested in as to what degree you would say that let's say a scientific mind or a curious mind if it is non-dogmatic um how you would see that actually combining aspects of religion and spirituality just like you do because many individuals still would claim that these things are uh you know, just hallucinations and so on. But to me, like a true inquiring, curious and also scientific mind would very well, of course, also explore these realms, especially if they are outside a maybe commonly held belief model. If there's anything you'd like to mention about that process. <clears throat> yes. Well, you see, the, the, the point about science is that it starts from the assumption um, that nature is inanimate, mechanical, purposeless, unconscious. Um, 
The, the ten basic assumptions of materialism are what I discuss in my book, Science Set Free, which is called The Science Delusion in Britain. Um, my TED talk was on the theme of these scientific dogmas. Um, now, the weakest part of all this is the consciousness itself. If the entire universe is unconscious, made of unconscious matter, and we're part of nature and made of unconscious matter, um, then the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain. That's what materialists think. Um, then they say, well, things like telepathy can't exist because the brain's just inside the head, so your thoughts can't influence other people at a distance. Um, mystical experiences are just about sort of short-circuiting bits of the brain or uh, floods of neurotransmitters or something like that. They're nothing to do with consciousness out there. It's all inside the brain. Now, that's a dogmatic assumption. It's not been proved by science. And in fact, materialism can't explain consciousness at all. We ought not to be conscious if materialism is true. And yet we are. And this is the biggest problem for materialism. It's called the hard problem, the existence of human consciousness. Some materialist philosophers try to pretend we're not conscious. They're called the school of eliminative materialism um, to eliminate consciousness. Some say it's uh, nothing but an epiphenomenon of the brain activity. It doesn't do anything like a shadow. Um, others say that it's an illusion produced by the brain. The trouble is that doesn't explain consciousness because illusion is itself a mode of consciousness. Um, so uh, the fact is that materialism simply can't explain consciousness. That's why it's called the hard problem. So it's not as if science has a better theory of consciousness than uh, direct experience. And, and after all, direct experience is consciousness. So if we're interested in consciousness, we're better off studying consciousness uh, rather than theories about consciousness that right from the outset can't possibly explain it. All they can do is look at the activity of bits of the brain. That tells us something. I mean, it obviously consciousness is normally related to the brain. The fact I'm talking now is because my thoughts influence my brain and that influences my jaw and my tongue and my lungs and all sorts of things like that. So I can uh, speak. Um, but the uh, so if we then say, well, what is science? Science is based on the empirical method. Empirical means experience. Um, and so if we're going to understand consciousness, understanding it in terms of experience is the scientific approach. Experiencing it in terms of dogma that can't uh, account for the experience and actually denies experience is anti-empirical and I think anti-scientific or pseudo-scientific. So um, I think that the um, consciousness studies, which have now become part of science, um, have the great advantage over old style materialism that they take consciousness seriously. You know, in consciousness studies, there are now people in universities studying near death experiences, psychedelic experiences, mystical experiences, um, you know, uh, various other altered states of consciousness, lucid dreams, and so on, as well as psychic and telepathic experiences, precognitive dreams, all these things are now being studied within the realm of consciousness studies and psychic research. Um, and I think that that is the correct scientific way to go about it through empirical research. And that's what I try to do myself. So people who say none of these studies are valid because they don't fit the materialist assumption that the mind's nothing but the brain. 
are simply being dogmatic. And there are often people who say who reject religion on the grounds it's dogmatic. But actually, I encounter, because I encounter lots of religious people and lots of scientific people in my life, uh, my experience, at least in modern Britain, is that the scientific uh, uh, people who are committed to scientism or, or science or uh, standard scientific views are far more dogmatic than any religious people I meet. Now, I know it's Voltarian, for sure, more uh, like militant atheism or whatever. Yes, and they're authoritarian as well. Um, they, they How have, Ryan. Yes, the, the, you know, this, you know, science proves this. And, um, you know, I'm a scientist. So I said, well, how does it prove this? And it basically they base their views of science on what they read in popular science works by atheists like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris um, or Daniel Dennett. Um, um, but, you know, most militant atheists are not even scientists. Um, they, 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 they don't. Christopher Hitchens, for example, was not a scientist, knew very little about science. So the people who say they believe most in science and base their atheism on science actually know very little about science and simply trust in the authority of the high priests of scientism. So that might be an interesting lead off question. I know Raphael had some uh, maybe a question or two or something about authority, but how do we go about, um, well, do you presume reality to be very democratized, given the fact that these morphic fields are overlapping? Do we have equal access to these things? And how do we prevent um, basically inherited hearsay models just because the higher authority says so, while still maintaining, it seems you have a kind of a both and um, simultaneity with the authority maybe of religion or the Bible or whatever, Um so how do you kind of break that down? Because it seems like what, and, and I'm kind of curious, and I don't want to ask too many questions that wants to confuse you or anything. Um, there's agendas going on. I don't know if like 17, 16, 1700 science, um, you know, Isaac Newton was a very mystical guy, so much so that people thought he was a little nuts, but he came up with a theory they couldn't really refute. So they had to kind of let him in the club, so to speak. Um, and I wonder if that was more of an agendaed approach um, it's almost like a prodigal son story in the sense that like, I guess we have to go really far astray to come back to the home and understand it or whatever. But so that's kind of a lot of questions, but how are you viewing reality? Is it how democratized do you think it is? Do you think it's hyper? I mean, solipsism being the most individual experience possible, like where on the scale do you th see things and what kind of agendas do you think are at play? Well, I think that the underlying all reality is uh, consciousness. I think that the consciousness, which I think of as the consciousness of God, comes first. And the consciousness of God is, uh, I'm, uh, I think the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is a particularly important model for this. Um, it's central to the traditional Christian faith. The, the creed is a statement of belief in the three aspects of God. And God the Father is rather like Sat in Sat Chitananda in Hinduism, Sat, the ground of being, conscious being. When God announces himself first to Moses, uh, Moses says, who are you? He says, I am who I am, or I am that I am. I am conscious being in the present. I mean, it's the clearest possible statement of God as conscious being. And that is what Hindus call Sat. Conscious being is the ground of everything. Then consciousness has content. It's not just empty um, and what the Hindus call Nama Rupa names and forms um, and what in the Christian model of the Trinity is the Logos the the principle of form order structure meaning reason um, these are the contents of consciousness what you can know 
the God the Father is the knower, and what the the Logos is that which is known, the Son in, in the Holy Trinity. Um, and the Son is himself a knower. So um, we are participating in that as knowers and known. Um, and then the Holy Spirit is the principle of movement, change, breath, flow. Um, it's the wind, the primal wind, right at the beginning of the book of Genesis, the spirit of God moved on the face of the waters or the face of the deep. It's the wind. The spirit means wind or breath uh, primarily. Um, and so I see the, the, the principal model of divine action in the entire universe as the source of all being itself, which is conscious ultimately. The source, ultimate source of names and forms, that means the structures of atoms, molecules, uh, you know, plants, animals, planets, galaxies, and, and our ability to think about them. There have to be forms in our minds in order to correspond with these forms in nature. And those are both aspects of the Logos. And so this aspect of God is reflected in every single thing, in every atom, in every flower, in every animal, in every planet, in every galaxy. And then it's not a static order. It's always changing. And that's uh, the principle of breath or flow, uh, working through energy in nature, through sunlight, through the energy in our bodies, the warmth, the heat, the muscular power, the ATP molecules in in uh, bio, at the biochemical level. Um, so the whole of nature is pervaded by the this principle of flow, the principle of form, and the principle of conscious being underlying it. In that sense, the divine consciousness is totally democratic, underlying everything in nature. Um, uh, I, my, my theological position is called panentheism. Um, God is in everything, and everything is in God. Pan means everywhere or everything, and N means in. God's in everything, and everything's in God. And it's different from pantheism, which says nature is God, um, and but there's nothing beyond nature and nothing beyond uh, the natural realm. Uh, what I think is that nature reflect, is a reflection of the divine being. It has a large measure of autonomy and freedom and creativity. Um, it's a reflection of the divine being. Um, and uh, but the divine being also transcends nature, just as our own minds are involved in our bodies. I mean, um, our minds per permeate our bodies. If I feel a pain in my big toe, there's a pain in my big toe. My mind is stretches through my body. It stretches out into the environment. Uh, it stretches into all the things I do and see and in all the interactions I have with other people. It's within and around me. But my mind is more than just me and my social world and my environment. Um, I can think about distant galaxies, the Big Bang, the nature of God. There's something about our minds which transcends the immediate concerns of our bodies. Um, and I think that the divine mind, in a similar way, transcends the cosmos. Um, it's within, but also transcendent of the cosmos. Are you taking more of a Jonathan Edwards kind of flavor? Um, it was kind of a Christianized Brahmanism in a sense of like we're machinations in the mind of God. Or do you think, I mean, there's no right or wrong here. I'm just kind of pontificating out loud. It seems like fractal embeddedness has a lot to do with this, where it's like the part is part of the whole. The whole is part of the parts, like you're saying. And maybe um, just for reference, because I'm sure you're familiar with it, the Indian term of achintya beda abeda tattva. 
the simultaneous oneness and difference of God and God's energies. It sounds to me like this is uh, what you're talking about, if you're familiar. Yes, yes something like that. Yes, yes. I think that they were, were that that there's a sense in which our consciousness is a kind of fractal version of God's consciousness. What the Indians say is Atman is Brahman. The the individual consciousness is part of the divine consciousness, and. Um, so it, it's not just human minds. I think that, you know, everything in nature has some kind of level of awareness or consciousness. Everything's self-organizing, including molecules and crystals and plants and animals and galaxies. Um, so I think everything has this, uh, in a sense, reflects the divine being and is part of it. Yes. Hold on. Um, so how is a Christian and as a scientist do you view time and teleological perspective? Um, obviously, kind of if we're in the mind of like, if we're all kind of playing around and just doing our thing on the um, consciousness construct, if you want to put it that way, and everything's like, you know, no matter what it has, it has to be experienced for the sake of the knower to know, in a sense. Um, how do you view temporality? Um, we tend to look at it in a human terminological lens, but obviously the fruit fly has just as much kind of embeddedness in time as. I don't know, the sun itself or whatever, like which has a much longer scale. Um, and do you have a particular flavor of teleological perspective that is playing into the morphic resonances? I mean, obviously that's like over time, things build up and remember itself through the kind of the Tao, if you want to put it that way. Um, do you think it's all accessible kind of an Akashic Jungian collective sense all at once? Or do you think there's actually linear temporality that we are experiencing for practical reasons? Well, I think time is polarized. And there's a difference between past and future. I mean, and this is reflected in everything in nature. The Big Bang uh, happened and the universe was very small and it gets bigger. Uh, plants and animals grow from fertilized eggs. They grow up. They don't grow down. Um, um, uh, there's a kind of process in everything. Um, uh, the whole evolutionary process is a process. It's a, a, there's ever greater complexity. And there's a memory through morphic resonance of what's gone before. There's always more memory because more things have happened before. Um, so it's a process in time and we're part of that process and our minds and our in lives and we grow up as we're embryos, then we're babies, then we're toddlers. We grow up and then we grow old and then we die. We have a pro we're part of a process in time. It's not an illusion. It's the very basis of reality itself at all levels. Um, and so the, I see that aspect of the divine, you see, I see that as an aspect of the Holy Spirit, which is a process um, in time. The Holy Spirit is breath or wind, it's a movement, and a movement has a past and a future. So I think this is intrinsic in the whole of reality in our lives and in our minds. Um, I think it's just the way things are. Um, now, I think there's an aspect of the divine which goes beyond time as well. You know, I think God the Father is, is the ground of being, is always being in the present. Um, but the, the beauty of the Trinitarian model or the Satchitananda model um, is that you have on the one hand a kind of eternal pole of God, a timeless pole of divine being. And that is, I think, something we touch through mystical experiences uh, in meditation, for example. But there's also... Um, a divine presence in movement or change, which is why in my book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, 
I think of sports as being a spiritual practice because that's to do with being in the flow, in the process of movement, change, and so on. It reminds me a little of Alan Watts's do be do kind of concept where it's like we have a, an actualization of presence that's beyond embodiment, we could say, because I don't want to put Gnostic terms in your mouth, uh, but it sounds when we talk about this um, fractalization being emanations of God as God participated, because that's the one threshold as a Christian I've never really crossed where I'm like, I'm not running around saying I'm God. I don't think my ontological nature is on that scale, however much I might reflect this uh, image bearing kind of capacity in ourselves or whatever. Um, but in terms of time, like I know Terrence was all about uh, time wave zero. Um, I'm sure he would get a kick of how reality is going down right now. He's like, I called it like 2012 and on is a bit kind of ratchet. Um, but also yugas being kind of a sine wave within time itself. Do you see any qualitative um, fluctuations that, I mean, do you agree with those kinds of observations or did you think those were kind of hodgepodge? Well, I think time has a quality. I mean, this is what astrology says. I'm not an astrologer, but, right. it, I, but the part of astrology I agree with is the bit that says time has a quality. It's not like a uniform line on a, an axis on a graph paper. Um, there are times when some things can happen more than others. And Terence's novelty wave was an attempt to describe the changing qualities of time through a graph. He had this graph. Um, now, I mean, I had problems with his novelty wave. I didn't agree with a lot of it. And, and Ralph and I used to tease him about it. Um, I'd love to see that. Well, okay, bro, your pet project is okay. <laughs> one of our, in one of our true, well, several of our trilogues, we, you know, we we teased Terence about the um, the novelty wave, um, particularly his prediction of uh, the end of history as we know it on the thirty first of December or twenty first of December, twenty twelve. Um, but Terence had a great sense of humor, you know, when we said, well, what will you do if it doesn't all disappear into a kind of collective DMT trip or time machine traveling backwards or all these different metaphors he had for this? He said, well, he said, that's when I'll reach the age of 65. So he said, if it doesn't happen, I'll just retire as a prophet. Um, so <laughs> how practical right? <laughs> it doesn't work. It's all good. Uh, but I, I mean, obviously, you've seen quite a lot of change in your own lifetime going from just simple understandings of physics to very complex political, you know, as above, so below kind of situations happening. Um, so even though I don't uh, and I, I pull I Ching cards every day and tarot cards and stuff, I think there's a way for us to intuitively imprint and uh, enmesh in a certain level of consciousness that happens to flow. But uh, it's for those with eyes to see. So it's really hard to like I do appreciate that he tried to kind of get it into a model. But um, if he was alive today, I'm sure he'd be like, oh, my gosh, I told you, like, we have a reality TV show president and just the, everything kind of got up to a different level of scale, tr like just the level of, you know, conspiracy theories going around and everything. Um, so very much when I say democratized reality, it seems OK, so I want to know your perspective on in C.S. Lewis's um, The Last Battle, which is the final of the seven of his Narnia series books. Um, it gets into the scene, spoiler alert, kids, uh, where basically they enter a domain, a hut, and some people are able to see reality as it is. We're at dinner with Aslan and all these heroes of ages past or whatever, and then other people are necessarily bound to a perspective that makes them think they're in a dingy stable eating hay or whatever's going on. Do you think um, that plays into – that's kind of what I was getting at with the democratized reality. I, do you think 
reality can be accessed by everybody equally? Or do you think there's some goats and sheep kind of language? I don't really know how to put that. But um, do you think some things are just not meant for certain people in a, in a phenomenological sense? Well, I think the potential to um, enter into connection with the divine is is potential is present for everybody and actually um, for animals as well. You know, I think that when you hear a, a songbird singing beautifully, um, it may easily be in a state of flow. And when a lizard is basking in the sun, it may easily be in a state of samadhi. You know, I think animals probably have mystical states as well. And because they're part of the divine and their minds work differently from ours, but they're all related to the divine mind, since I think everything is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that the, the, the potential is there. But of course, most people aren't very interested in realizing that potential. It's, you know, they're more preoccupied with everyday concerns, you know, making a living, cooking the dinner, looking after the kids, you know, dealing with someone who's sick, uh, you know, worrying about their self-image, you know, getting ahead in the world, uh, watching fantasy, you know, sort of indulging in pornography, you know, you know, getting drunk, uh, you know, there's people are busy doing all sorts of things which um, block out this um this other realm and we can't always access it all the time um you know the hindus have the idea of the four stages of life you start as a student um studying then you become a householder and while you're a householder you're married you've got kids your your dharma your duty is to look after your kids make a living you know keep your house in order grow your food and so on but when your kids have left home and they're married off then you become a forest hermit of Vanaprastha. you start reading holy books and thinking about bigger picture and then finally the last stage is sannyas where you undergo a kind of funeral you put on the orange robes of the holy man and used to become a wandering holy man and you end your life with no fixed home you've given away all your goods you beg Uh, You go to the holy places of India, and if you're lucky, you die in Benares or some other holy place. That's their model of life, their kind of idealized life. So they don't think everyone should be doing all these things all the time. Um, I myself think it's better to have spiritual practices that are, are accessible every day. And there are a lot of people now, millions of people who meditate every day, and many more millions who pray every day. Um... And uh, the whole point of my books on spiritual practices is there's many different kinds of spiritual practice that we can make part of our everyday lives. Some suit some people better than others. Um, But um, meditation, prayer, pilgrimage, singing and chanting, taking part in collective rituals like church services uh, or other religious uh, services or rituals. Um, These are all uh, sports, um, even psychedelics, which I think for many people are a kind of rite of passage into a spiritual realm. They certainly were for me, uh, opening my mind to this possibility. So I think it's a, the the best way to have a kind of balance is 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 to have practices, spiritual practices, as part of our daily lives. That's a very Capricorn Moon North Node Virgo, practical embodiment of the spirituality Cancer conjunct Jupiter in eighth house. Not surprising. Um, maybe one or two things and then we'll let you go. Cause I know you've got a busy schedule. Um, so in terms of 
when I was talking about time earlier, um, I remember because I've watched all your trilogues. That's how I became aware of you at all. In fact, I was big on Terrence and then saw that. And I mean, this was at a time when I was eating LSD and watching like Mendelbrot tours and stuff. So I'm sure Ralph would dig that. But the point is, like, I was, you guys were jamming on a lot of hard cylinders, prophets in the wilderness, in a sense. I really do feel that it was a very beautiful thing to witness. It inspired me at high levels. Um, and I think anybody who hasn't seen these things go on YouTube, type in trilogues, uh, with McKenna, Sheldrake and Abraham, and you guys will thoroughly enjoy the 30 plus, uh, kind of multi-hour discussions long for, it was like a podcast before podcast. It was great. Um, so something that you, one of the episodes that stuck out to me was you were talking about time and kind of deconstructing this Gregorian thing. That was probably the one where you and Ralph were maybe making fun of him uh, about his model because, you know, it obviously had a teleological bent to it. But um, my question kind of is, what what do you think the nature of time is now? Do you think we're in a new time? Like, are we in a new morphic time where like the, the Hopi prophecies and the biblical apocalypse or any number of these things are occurring um and do you think there's better ways of interpreting reality at that level this kind of whether it's astrology or non-gregorian things like do you because we have a set model like a scientific hand-me-down essentially where we're like okay this is the how we measure a day and this is we're you know counting in tens and all this kind of stuff do you think there's a better way should we be experimenting well, I certainly think we're in an extraordinary time of human evolution and indeed evolution on Earth. Now, I don't know about the rest of the cosmos, so, you know, how related what happens here is to the rest of the cosmos is depends on your worldview. Personally, I think we are connected with the rest of the cosmos rather than it being a purely provincial affair here on Earth. Um, but here on Earth, clearly human evolution has reached an unprecedented level of interconnection through the Internet and through global travel and all that kind of thing and technology. Um, uh, also through science, uh, which is now transforming the Earth uh, through technology for good or ill all around us. And also through the fact we now have access to all the world's spiritual traditions in the past. If you lived in a medieval a village in in Europe, you only knew about the Christian tradition. Maybe when you went into a city, you might come across some Jews, um, but uh, you knew about Muslims because of the Crusades. But that was it. You didn't know about Hindus or Buddhists or Native American shamans or Siberian shamans or ayahuasca taking in the Amazon or anything like that. There's all this was completely unknown. Um, now. Everyone, everywhere, basically has access to all these traditions. And what we find is that these spiritual practices uh, have a lot in common between different traditions. That's one reason I, I wrote my two most recent books, because this is a unique time spiritually, as well as in terms of climate change and species destruction and economy and population and all those kinds of things. Uh, um, so... We're in a unique position at the moment, and it's not obvious it's all going to end well. Uh, in fact, most people I know, most young people I know, are actually quite pessimistic. You know, they see you know, disasters looming ahead of them. Um, a lot of young people I know don't want to have children because they think this is not a world you should bring children into. So, um, on the other hand, you know, it could be a possibility for going to a completely new level of human and global evolution in which 
spiritual um, the, the spiritual component has to play a major part but it's not yet clear which way that's going or how it will come about um, so uh, I think we have to hope and pray that it will end, end up well but it's not going to end up well if we just do nothing about it we're co-creators and never has co-creation been more necessary or important than now I can hear that um, Rafa, I don't know if you had any last questions. I've been talking the whole time, but well, there's of course so many things. Uh, thank you for explaining all of that. I would very much agree with the idea of the spiritual component. This always reminds me of Rudolf Steiner and his prophecy about a hundred years ago, where he kind of they noted that oh my God, the world is going down this route of uh, material reductionism, and even back then it was obvious that this is not a path that is sustainable. However, he also mentioned that about this time now, um, there may be a new chance for a new, where this may all be just potentially the disturbance that is necessary as the system in terms of human society as a whole is stabilizing itself actually on a higher level of order, um, which would then include uh, the idea of spirituality as well. Um, in terms of uh, particular questions, the one uh, thing maybe you may would like to comment is the idea of brainwaves and the idea of the different states of mind. And you also kind of explain it with this uh, Trinity approach, because as far as I understand, basically, potentially also including with the idea of, let's say, dogmatic science and population at large, we are usually kept within certain brainwave frequency states and certain other brainwave frequency states like gamma and so on and theta and so on and so forth are not really included in the everyday reality and are often potentially even scoffed at. However, it seems to me that just as we are complete individuals, it is also very much about exploring these different brainwave states. And I would assume, maybe you can talk more about this, that many of the things you mentioned in going beyond actually, of course, have to do with simply accessing different uh, brainwave states, or at least that would be the representation of that change or that different uh, level of consciousness. Yes, well, I mean, there's no doubt that there are different patterns of activity in the brain during meditation, during LSD and psilocybin experiences and so on. I mean, all of this can be measured with brain scanners, EEGs and so forth. Um, so there's no doubt that these states, changes in the functioning of the brain correlate with changes in states of consciousness. Um, but I don't necessarily think that consciousness has to be linked all the time to brain states. I mean, when we're dreaming, for example, um, we have the experience of having another body. When I dream, and I'm sure when you dream, uh, you don't dream, I'm lying asleep in bed. You dream, I'm walking around, I'm thinking about this, I'm talking to somebody, I'm going there, I'm swimming, even flying. So you're moving around in your dreams in another body. Now, the standard assumption would be all that and all that experience is inside your head. But although you have rapid eye movements while this is happening, there are changes in brain waves. Uh, the content of these dreams is not necessarily all inside your head. Uh, there are realms of virtual reality that we can explore, maybe independently of the body. And when people have out-of-the-body experiences, um, which some people can do voluntarily, and many people have them during near-death experiences, um, there's the feeling that the center of consciousness can be separate from the body. 
uh, people find themselves floating above their body. Um, so I don't take it for granted that all states of consciousness are in the brain. Um, and um, if, as I believe, and as many people believe, there's something about our consciousness that can survive the death of our bodies, then you have to have uh, an aspect of consciousness that's not simply related to the activity of the brain. Um, I personally think of um, the, the afterlife um, as being like dreaming, uh, but you can't any longer wake up. In our dreams, we travel beyond our body every night, even if we don't remember our dreams. We have another body in the dream body. And I think when we die, it's like dreaming, but we can't any longer wake up because there's no physical body to wake up into. Um, and some people may have nightmares, which would be like hell, uh, feeling trapped in some kind of dream state, which is horrible or threatening, painful. So some people may have absolutely blissful experiences. Uh, some people may have a mixture. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the what the Roman Catholics have always called purgatory is a, a state of existence after death of continued development, of continued experience. Uh, it's not that you go straight into a state of samadhi or, or divine bliss or assimilation into the divine being. Or the one potential process is really well illustrated in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, actually. Yes, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis is, I think, a brilliant book because what mm -hmm. it describes is the state of people after death who um, go on in the state they've been in in life. They, they're sort of separate from each other. People who don't recognize um, that there's any spiritual reality beyond um, their life end up in kind of sprawling gray suburbs uh, where everyone tries to be as far away from everyone else as they can be. And they use a, I mean, it's a bit like a kind of celestial Los Angeles. Um, where they're all sprawling out further and further in, in this kind of gray, shadowy world. It's utterly depressing and pointless and stuff. That's his description of a life without any sense of spiritual direction, of just clinging on to ego and the wish to be separate from others. Um, so, uh, but I think that the, uh, you know, nobody knows what happens when we die, but you know, Hindus think we come back and Buddhists think we come back. I, I think sometimes people do and, and maybe reincarnated in exceptional circumstances. But personally, I think we go through this transitional period of continued development. And if we can still pray and meditate after after death, which I think we can, if we're in the habit of doing that uh, when we're alive, then there's a way we can get out of that into a higher state of consciousness um, after death, uh, but it may take time. I, I don't think it's instantaneous. Well, speaking of time, I know we're kind of out of it. You've got a life to live. I do want to thank you very much for coming on. Um, if you ever want to come back on, I'll reach out. There's a lot more to talk about, but you're a man with a lot of experience and a lot of insight. So thank you for doing what you've done and not only the uh, work you did with Terrence and just shooting the shit and having fun with them because that was really fun to witness and uh, observe, um, but also just taking it to the system and trying to show people there's other ways of thinking. Uh, were there any kind of last thoughts you wanted to kind of leave everybody with? Um, well, I suppose um, one of them is, you know, if you don't have spiritual practices now, try taking one or more up. And in my own books, um, I suggest some. The, the simplest perhaps is gratitude, just giving thanks every day for the things that have gone well for you and that have 
being good in your life. And being grateful connects us with the flow of things. Um, it has measurable effects on people's happiness and, and popularity for that matter. I mean, it's good for you, good for you uh, to be grateful. Uh, but it's also, um, it's connecting. All these spiritual practices are connecting. They give us a greater sense of connection. So I would say, you know, if, if for people who don't have spiritual practices, try them. And in my books, I suggest very simple practices, like for gratitude, just spending a bit of time every evening or whenever in the day thinking about things for which you're grateful, writing them down or just thinking about them and giving thanks before meals, a very traditional practice, grace. Uh, what we do in our own home is just hold hands silently. So people who are visitors who may not be Christian or they may be Jewish or Buddhist or atheist, you know, everyone can have a, uh, can give thanks in their own way. And so just introducing spiritual practices into our lives. So most people in the secular modern world have lost their traditional spiritual practices and haven't got new ones. Um, and so I think this is the most important thing to actually bring some of these practices into our lives. Um, so anyway, I'd just like to say in the end, well, great that you're doing this and that you're on this quest and that you're helping others who are on a quest. I think this is really important and all the best for what you're doing. Which I would gracious. just uh, thank you very much and would like to give thanks to you uh, both for this interview and also all that quote unquote you've done or impacted. I know many of my friends have been inspired and also solidified kind of uh, the idea that there is a beyond, there is more to the whole thing. And also as you exemplified it with your own work and in your own life that uh, there is always, let's say, in a sense, another system to transcend or there is always more to the picture. So um, thank you very, very much uh, for that insight and kind of also breaking collectively the morphogenic idea of, of this concept and really putting it down and making it clear for everyone. So uh, thank you very, very much. Well, thank you. Guys, just remember, find the others, as Larry and McKenna would say. There's many people out there on the same wave. Don't be afraid to look for them. And as Reaper Cheap would say, further up and further in. Radio Pokey.